the first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. Today, Shannon Gilbert's mother had plenty to say about the investigation. I just wish that they would find her or find the person involved and catch, catch the psychopath who's doing this and, and put an end to it. I think that I should be, as a parent, be notified first before even the media. It hurts to find out on TV. It hurts to find out from the media. Let me know so I can brace myself and my children and my other daughters can brace themselves for what potentially awaits. I am just waiting to be contacted by proper authorities to identify any items that they think may be hurt. I hope it's not. I'm always giving out hope that we'll find her alive, but if it is, Maybe it'll be a step closer in finding her once and for all. And Mary made a plea to the media. She told me, quote, don't give up on us. Keep it active. Help us find who's doing this and put an end to it. Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vianick. I'm here with Alexis Linkletter. It is Friday. Uh, We're in your feeds on a Friday. It's new for us. It is new for us. Just We're- sliding in those feeds every day of the week. <laughs> I know. It's getting kind of crazy. I mean, we are doing three episodes a week at this time. Um, but today's episode is super, super special. We are kicking off our 10 bonus episodes that correlate and go along with our Long Island Serial Killer series. So today is a really special day. If you haven't listened to this week's episode yet, go ahead and listen to that. So everything will kind of make sense as we go along, right, Lex? Yes, absolutely. And for those of you listening today, you will have had at least part one of our series in your feed. If you're on Patreon, you have all three But regardless of how far you got in that, you'll know who the person we're discussing today is, if you're at all familiar with some of the circumstances of the Long Island serial killer. And to piggyback on what Jack said, these victim-focused episodes are just one prong of our heavy metal project initiative. And we're extremely passionate about keeping these victims' memories alive. And we hope that by shining a light on their stories, someone, somewhere, might be able to provide information that will lead to the arrest of the Long Island serial killer. But beyond that, this initiative is one that demands rights for sex workers as well, because the violence they're subjected to is, frankly, unacceptable. And another prong of the Heavy Metal Project's fundraising and awareness initiative includes a partnership with jewelry designer Jimmy Toast. And the designer, her name's Jamie, and she's a Long Island native like me, and she's in Patreon like (laughs) <laughs> Any firsties listening who are also there, you could find her and say hi. Amazing. And she worked really hard on these necklaces. And in fact, you know, this necklace initiative was her idea. She makes them all by hand. It's, you know, she's skilled and she's so passionate about this too. So um, these necklaces right now, if you're listening to this, the Shannon one is available. Yep. And you can shop for it and look at it and see it at theheavymetalproject.com and probably our Instagrams as well. And another kind of perk for being in our Patreon is we are releasing these necklaces to the public on Friday, but we'll be releasing them to all of our firsties and the firstie underground on our Patreon on Thursdays because they are a limited drop. Uh, Jamie's making these all by hand, so it's not like she can make hundreds of 
the necklaces. So when they're kind of gone, they're gone forever. So if you want to really get first dibs, then, you know, it's another little perk for being in our Patreon. Definitely. And what we should do, and actually now that we're thinking of it, we have photos of all the necklaces. We'll share them in advance this week. So, you know, maybe you like one coming down the line. Maybe a certain case resonates with you if you're familiar with the case. So we'll show all of them to you this week. So you can wait for the one you want if if that's the case. I love that. So 100% of the net profits from these necklaces are going to be donated to the Sex Workers Outreach Project or SWAP. SWAP is a nonprofit dedicated to the fundamental rights of people in the sex trade, and they're working to end violence and stigmas against sex workers. So again, you can go to theheavymetalproject.com to shop now. SWAP is an amazing cause, and like we said, they're going to be available for a limited time. So I think that is all our housekeeping for today. So let's dive right into our first of 10 mini episodes. Let's do it. So today we're getting to know Shannon Gilbert. When Shannon was 23 years old, she was a sex worker. And on May 1st of 2010, she went to a new client's home at about 2 a.m. This client was 47-year-old Joseph Brewer, and he lived in a wealthy Long Island community called Oak Beach. Shannon ran screaming from his house and vanished somewhere near Gilgo Beach. And on December 11th of 2010, an officer and his police dog were doing training exercises along Gilgo Beach. They were hoping to find a clue that would really break Shannon's case wide open. But instead, they stumbled upon the remains of four female sex workers. And the discovery of these victims, who would become known as the Gilgo Four, led to the unveiling of the Long Island serial killer. Right. And Shannon's case was the unexpected catalyst that started the Lisk investigation and the Lisk case at all. And it's been said that because of Shannon, any of us know what became of these victims. We may not have ever known what happened to Megan, Maureen, Melissa, Amber. The list goes on and on. Valerie, Jessica. So it's it's pretty heroic when you think about it in that context. Because I talked to investigators there on Long Island, and what they told me was that had they never been discovered when they were searching for Shannon, that Hurricane Sandy completely demolished this area in this part of the shoreline. So, you know, the Gilgo Four were just placed on top of the brush, and the brush kind of, like, enveloped them. And this area would have flooded, sand would have covered it. We, We may have never known what happened to any of them. So it is really an important part of this entire case. And, you know... So many questions about what happened to Shannon are still here, and her connection to this case remains among the most controversial points. So what exactly happened to Shannon when she was inside Brewer's house, and what happened to her after she left? Did she really die by misadventure, as the Suffolk County police claim? Was she a victim of the Long Island serial killer? Or is it possible that Shannon's death was a part of an even more sinister, but possibly adjacent, cover-up? So to answer these questions, you know the drill. We got to go back. Shannon Maria Gilbert was born on October 24th of 1986 in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, to her mother Mary and her father Floyd. She had two younger sisters named Sherry and Sarah. When Shannon was about five years old, her mom left her father because of his debilitating heroin addiction. So Shannon, her sisters, and her mother moved to upstate New York. About a year later, Shannon's mom's boyfriend turned out to be abusive. So as a result, Shannon, Sherry, Sarah, and her new little sister, Stevie, which I love that name, were put into the foster care system. So after two years of foster care, Mary was finally able to regain custody of her daughters. And the family of five moved to the small village of Ellenville, New York. 
Mary did her best working mostly at Walmart while raising her four young daughters. But sometimes as a single mom, Mary struggled to keep up with everything. Like when Shannon started acting out and running away a lot, Mary didn't have the luxury of being able to just not go to work to look for her because she had a roof to keep over her family's head. Um, She couldn't get fired from her job. She was supporting this big family all by herself. That's kind of the plight of a single mom in a situation like this. It's not ideal, but it's done with love and with whatever resources that can be mustered. But luckily for Mary, Shannon always came back. At age seven, Shannon returned to the foster care system, and it's unclear exactly what led to this happening, but it did. Apparently, Mary felt that Shannon was just too difficult to control, and she attributed Shannon's poor behavior to her depression and her bipolar disorder. And according to Mary, Shannon struggled to take her prescribed medications because she hated their negative side effects. But Shannon was a child at this point. You know, it's probably not that unusual for kids to be complaining about their medications. They probably don't even know what the hell they're doing. Well, adults complain about them. Yeah. Adults (laughs) won't even take their medication. (laughs) And like, if if you're a kid, it's like, you don't even know what any of this even is going on in your brain. Your brain is not even developed even a little bit. So I can't even imagine what she was kind of dealing with at that young age, but you know, we don't really know. And there could have been additional circumstances that we don't know about, but that's what we know. Right. And there were rumors that Mary's boyfriend at the time didn't get along with Shannon. And that's why Mary got her out of the house. But we're not sure if there's any validity there. And truthfully, these matters, like Jack said, are so complicated and layered. And we shouldn't judge anything that Mary has been through. And it is true, though, that in later years, Shannon's sisters would reveal that that same boyfriend had abused them, unbeknownst to Mary. And when Shannon's sisters came forward, Mary supported them and believed them. The accused boyfriend went to jail and died not long after. For years, Shannon lived in the same community, went to the same schools, and spent time with the same people as her sisters. She just didn't live with them at the time. But when Shannon was in eighth grade, things finally were starting to look up for her. She played Miss Hannigan in her middle school production of the musical Annie, and she discovered her love for the performing arts. Shannon could sing, dance, write, and loved wearing really cute clothes. And a future in entertainment really kind of seemed right up Shannon's alley. Around that same time, Shannon was able to return home to her mother and sisters, but she only stayed there for a year. After that, Shannon moved in with her final foster parent named Jennifer. And as a young, well-off woman who lived in New Paltz, about 20 miles east of Ellenville, Shannon loved living with Jennifer. For the first time ever, Shannon had access to nicer things like designer clothing, and of course, she loved it. Obviously, she loved it. So now that Shannon had some financial stability in her life, she started doing really well in school. She took up writing poetry, developed her singing voice, and made a lot of friends. And according to Robert Kochler's book, The Lost Girls, classmates described Shannon as popular, bright, energetic, talented, and beautiful. But after Shannon graduated early from New Paltz High School at the age of 16, she had a hard time finding her way. And what you just said, Jack, just about the financial stability that allowed Shannon to focus on school and focus on her passions. Like a lot of privileged people don't realize that people living in poverty don't have the opportunity to focus on their studies. Like they're worrying about how to eat and they're worrying about what other chaotic situations could be going on in their life. And a lot of, you know, before we judge how anyone gets into sex work, it's really important to understand that these people are living in environments that we cannot fathom sometimes. Um, It's, It's true. And so Shannon, when she was 
out of high school, she tried out kind of a lot of different paths in life to see what she was interested in. She took some classes in nursing. She got a job at a hotel and she waitressed at an Applebee's. And she also helped out at a senior center and was even a school secretary for a while. But nothing really seemed to fulfill Shannon the way performing did. So after a brief stint in New Jersey, Shannon moved to New York City with her boyfriend. And she was ready to kind of pursue this dream of hers and she wanted to find a big break. And Shannon loved New York City. And she especially loved Manhattan's avant-garde fashion scene, which, I mean, I would do. Shannon was known for her iconic skinny jeans, oversized glasses, big designer purses, and a beautiful wig collection. I love this look. I'm Sounds really very into Jackie it. O. Very big, Jackie big O. Big bag, big glasses. She yeah, I love it. Me too. And she was also trying to audition for singing gigs and acting roles. You know, she's just like trying to make it in New York City. Yep. And she even enrolled in online classes for her bachelor's degree in communication. So she's kind of like doing it all. Yeah. And sometime in Shannon's early 20s, she started doing sex work. Her sisters, Sherry and Sarah, expressed their concerns about Shannon's job. But according to their interviews with Newsday, they realized that Shannon was doing sex work more or less for survival. And at the end of the day, Shannon thought the risk of sex work was worth the reward. For the first time in her adult life, she could pay her own bills and then some. And at this time, Shannon was also struggling with a drug addiction, and she'd been arrested for sex work once in 2007. So with her addiction eating away at her extra cash and now, you know, a record, this made it even harder for Shannon to get out of sex work even if she wanted to. It was going to be challenging. Right. So Shannon worked for two escort services before she started her own independent sex work business. She'd advertise her services on Craigslist and then hire a driver who could also protect her and meet clients in their homes. And that's exactly what Shannon was doing when she met with Joseph Brewer the night that she went missing. Two days after Shannon went missing, her family filed a missing persons report with the Suffolk County Police Department. But the law enforcement officials never got back to them about it. Mary Gilbert, who admittedly had a complicated relationship with Shannon during her early years, really went above and beyond to get the police to take notice. Mary and Shannon's sisters traveled all the way to Oak Beach on their own dime. They interviewed the residents, they passed out missing persons flyers, and even found some of Shannon's jewelry that had been missed by the police. They were doing everything they could to drum up media attention for Shannon's disappearance. It is so crazy that they're the ones that are finding all of her per- or some of her personal belongings. Oh, yeah. It's crazy that 18 months later, they found her purse. And I'm like, I've been, it's a neighborhood she went missing in. It's like, yeah. it's, it's like, not like, it's like a her, city. Right. And like, you, it took 18 months to find her purse and her clothes and her jacket that were less than a quarter mile away from where she vanished. It's just bananas. Do you know exactly like where they were when they found them? So Oak Beach, it's laid out and it's like a pretty winding community. And between all the houses, there it's an oceanside community. And if you're not familiar with Long Island coastal foliage, there are reeds that are like 15 feet high. There are really rough, prickly, thorny brambles. It's a really dense, swampy buggy gnats, mm-hmm. mosquitoes. Like it's a really difficult kind of swamp land to, to navigate. So my understanding is that they found items in there, Got but it. I just wonder what even prompted them to search that area again. Like, do yeah. they think they, did they think they searched it already? And then they searched it again, 18 months later. It's just, it just seems odd that they would search like 
where they found the Gilgo Four was miles down the road. So you would search there before you search a quarter mile in the same neighborhood just seems odd to me. Yeah, very, very odd. So back to Shannon's sisters, they're kind of doing what the police were supposed to be doing. You know, they're going out there and trying to find evidence. And they did a lot of amazing work. They found something. They saw that the police were kind of blowing off Shannon's case because she was a sex worker and they weren't having any of that. And after eight months of the Gilbert family diligently calling the Suffolk County police over and over and over again, the officers finally started looking for Shannon. And that is when, like we've said and we've talked about, the Gilgo Four were found and when the Long Island serial killer was finally exposed. And also, like we said at the top of this episode, we might not even know the Long Island serial killer existed without the persistence and badassery of Shannon Gilbert's family. So beyond Shannon being heroic, so is Mary and her sisters. And when the police started uncovering the remains of victims, Shannon's family did not take a break. They reached out to the families of the Gilgo Four and helped organize vigils, and they were integral to multiple fundraising events. And each and every time the Suffolk County police discovered yet another victim of the Long Island serial killer, Shannon's family held their breath. Was it Shannon? Could this be her? And just imagine that experience for them. They, they went through this pain of not knowing longer than any other family, of course, other than the unidentified victims who we don't know what their families went yeah. through. But um, either way, Shannon's sister Sherry reportedly had dreams about Shannon every night. So this is super traumatic and a painful experience for the entire family. Yeah. And after 10 sets of human remains were finally found and none of them were Shannon, her family really struggled to stay hopeful in this whole situation. Until finally on December 13th of 2011, the Suffolk County Police found Shannon's remains. But in a shocking twist, Shannon's remains had been located only three quarters of a mile away from her last known whereabouts. So, I mean, we've talked about this a few times so far. They're looking all over the place, hundreds of officers, dozens of cadaver dogs. They're combing this area with a fine-tooth comb, and they never find Shannon. The whole thing is, like we said, a little bit sus, but, you know, what can you do? Right. And Shannon's family wasn't sure that the police were really telling the truth about the location of Shannon's remains. I would be skeptical as well. But when the local authorities claimed that Shannon had died by misadventure and she drowned in ankle-deep water, Shannon's family at this point is like, no. Right. And something that no one could have pieced together at the time this was unfolding in real time, but something we kind of did piece together and unraveled was that Immediately following the discovery of Shannon's remains was when James Burke was installed as the chief and the investigation basically slowed to a halt. So that just added more speculation as to police involvement and maybe this new person was installed to guide the outcome of the investigation to continue, you know, hiding information. Again, that's not that's not fact, but it's just odd timing. And the speculation obviously continued to explode. So meanwhile, as far as who could be connected to Shannon's disappearance, police had quickly cleared Joseph Brewer and Shannon's driver from the night she went missing, Michael Pack, of involvement in Shannon's death. But they've never actually been open as to why. But I'll take a guess. My best guess is, you know, we know for a fact that when Shannon was on the phone with 911, you can hear Brewer and Pack in the background. Yeah. And when Shannon ran from the house, Brewer and Pack were together. So they kind of like can confirm that neither of them did it. They're like corroborating um, their own Well, right. And they're, they're both sus. And, you know, they're both breaking the law. You know, Michael Pack is facilitating sex work legally and Brewer's patronizing it illegally. 
Shannon's doing it illegally, yeah. even though it should be legal. But, you know, so it's like, it's sort of mutually assured destruction, but the police were involved and it's like, they were together when Shannon vanished. And then when Shannon runs to the neighboring houses and bangs on the door, the men aren't following her and she's alone. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's, I think they must have some evidence because if they could pin this on someone, I'm sure they would have. Yeah. So that's, that's my take on why they're cleared, but we don't know for sure. Another person who's integral to Shannon's case and who has kind of been with the Gilbert family since the beginning is the attorney, John Ray. Um, he has his own practice on Long Island and he's a very kind man. He does everything pro bono. He dedicates so much time and resources to Shannon's case. Um, he's dedicated a great deal of his career to this case, really. It means a lot to him. And he's he's a huge resource of information when it comes to Shannon. And on one occasion, John even recreated the circumstances of Shannon's death. He ran through the streets of Oak Beach late at night and crawled through the same bramble where the police said that they discovered her remains. He had a woman come with him who resembled Shannon in her height and her weight to see if the police theory about what happened was even feasible at all. So, you know, she ended up without her clothes on, without any of her belongings, and dead somehow in ankle-deep water. So it was really hard to explain how that really could have happened. Right. Like, can her clothes come off crawling through the bramble? Like, your jeans get unbuttoned? You know, like, I I don't think so. Yeah. So it's... then, right? So then what are they suggesting? That in some induced psychosis, she she gets naked and crawl. You can't crawl in these bushes without really hurting yourself. Like, no one would do that. Yeah. Uh, like, you don't, these aren't bushes that you're like, I can get through those. Like, they look I know it'll make it easier if I took my clothes off. Yeah, that'll hurt less. Like, like yeah, it makes what? I could see why everyone like balked at the police theory. It just it's hard to it's hard to buy. Yeah. We're here today at the site of these terrible crimes because the Suffolk County Police Department is grossly derelict in its duty not only to have investigated these murders properly but also because they failed to protect the lives of these people who are now gone. And that is certainly inclusive of Shannon. There is no doubt from what we know of the evidence that Shannon would still be alive today if Suffolk County police had actually done their job. But instead, the commissioner of police in Suffolk County has acted like he's, he's running a, an investigation like the Pink Panther. Today, I hope this brings us one step closer to finding a killer, but we need help. We no, need help from the public. We need help from the FBI. We need help from your news media. Is all I'm requesting is this. Think of it as if it was your child, if it was your mother or your father or your sister or your brother. How would you feel that someone knew something, someone could help, but didn't want to, and they didn't care? Is all that I am asking for my family and on behalf of the other victims' families is please help end my pain and their pain and find this killer before he strikes and hurts and murders someone that you love. So based on John Ray's experiments, obviously he doesn't believe that Shannon's death was due to accidental drowning. 
He also helped coordinate an independent autopsy of Shannon's remains. And while the autopsy didn't determine Shannon's true cause of death, it did show that several bones from Shannon's neck were missing. And strangely enough, these missing bones were exactly what the independent ME would have needed to determine whether or not Shannon was strangled. And the strangulation is reportedly how the other victims in the Long Island serial killer case were killed. So if Shannon didn't drown and the perpetrators aren't Joseph Brewer or Michael Pack, well, then what happened? We don't really know for sure. But John Ray is pretty sure that Dr. Peter Hackett, an Oak Beach resident, who we discussed in our three-parter, was involved. He's convinced of Hackett's involvement, in fact. So the day after Shannon disappeared, Hackett allegedly called Shannon's mom, Mary. And this is really, really weird because Mary didn't even know that Shannon was missing yet. On the phone call, Hackett allegedly told Mary that he knew Shannon because she'd been at the halfway house that he ran for wayward women and children. And apparently he explained that he'd seen Shannon the night before. So this is the same night that she went missing. He's telling her mom that he saw her that night. And he allegedly told Mary that Shannon had come to his house and he'd given her medication. So that's apparently why he was calling Mary. He wanted to follow up and see if Shannon was okay. So I want to just flag something real quick because we keep saying words like they suspected a police cover-up and now we're saying they suspected Peter Hackett. How can both be true? So Something we touched on in our larger episodes about this is that Peter Hackett is a very strange guy. He fancied himself like the de facto security guard of Oak Beach. He carried around like a police benevolent association little badge that would get you out of trouble, like if you got pulled over. And he calls himself the Suffolk County police surgeon because he was treating Suffolk County officers for a long time. But another thing that you need to know about him is that he's kind of a guy that likes to insert himself in things that get him attention. So one thing he's known to have done is say that he was integral in like helping with 9-11, like pulling bodies from the water. Um, Yeah. But this brings me something else because I also, so what does this mean? Where am I going with this? So I was trying to find a connection between Peter Hackett and James Burke for a really long time. Mm -hmm. And I was like failing. I was like, I can't find anything. And then I ordered all of the letters that were written on James Burke's behalf when he was sentenced for the beating of Chris Loeb. And I found one letter that was like, James Burke is such an amazing officer. He worked diligently at the morgue for 9-11, pulling bodies from the water, and he guarded the morgue. And I'm like, oh, they probably met there. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm. Like, and, and also it's my understanding that Oak Beach falls into Suffolk County's first precinct, like, um, patrol area. And that he, that was his, So that was James Burke when he was an up and coming officer. So there's a lot of ways that they could have known each other, either through him treating um, Suffolk County officers, possibly at 9-11 in the morgue, which would be fucking crazy. Yeah. Um, And maybe just, you know, from being around this area together. But it's possible that they're both involved. Like, it's possible. But I mean, it's confusing. His behavior is just super, super suspect, super fucking weird. And we all know those kind of people, or you at least have heard about them in a lot of these true crime stories, the people, the perpetrators usually that insert themselves either, you know, at the vigil or they go to the, and get really close to the family. Like, it's just kind of weird. Or they're going and doing interviews. So it's like, it wouldn't be the craziest thing. It wouldn't be the craziest thing. And just talking through the scenario is like, okay, 
This call to Shannon's mom, first of all, he lied about it until Mary could prove it and cops looked at his phone and it's like, no, these calls happened. So we have to ask, where did you get this woman's number? Yeah. Are you lying about what happened with Shannon? Did you see her at all? I mean, he can't be fully lying because he called the mother. And And this is the first time he's ever called her mom. Yeah. First time ever. And if you're lying, why would someone do that? And if Shannon was in your house, how are you, and you, you know, his story is like, I gave her a medication and she left. Like, how does that not make you responsible? Especially if the police theory is that she was, she went, you know, had an episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, okay, well, maybe this weirdo doctor illegally prescribed, like gave her something that worsened her condition or it's way more malicious than this. And he's directly involved, but like this call to Mary seems to implicate him beyond a reasonable doubt to some degree. Like, cause yeah. you can't explain the call otherwise. I mean, yeah, we we're talking about it in the main episode about just like how many coincidences are too many coincidences. And this is a big glaring one that is just a little bit too bizarre. Absolutely. So about a week after these calls were placed to Mary, the Gilbert family tried to talk to Peter Hackett in person when they were in Oak Beach searching for Shannon. Um, And that's when Hackett started denying it to Mary's face. And she's like, no, you did. You called me. But he continued to lie about it till it was proven. And after the calls were proven to have been made, Hackett started changing his story. Now he's saying, yes, I did call Mary. But it was after Shannon's boyfriend and Michael Pack came around looking for Shannon. And Shannon's boyfriend asked him to call Mary, but that just also sounds like bullshit because this was never relayed to Mary and the boyfriend denies this. Um, So, yeah. Is he lying? Is he not? Is he a weirdo? Is he involved? Anyone's guess because he was cleared, according to the Suffolk County Police Department. Um, Cleared of what? I don't know. I don't know if he admitted to giving the medication. Um, It's weird. So John Ray did get a statement from a neighbor of Hackett's named Bruce Anderson. And Bruce said that Hackett told him the truth about Shannon and that Shannon had gone into Hackett's house the night that she went missing, taken medication, and left in a confused state of mind. But Hackett continued and still continues to deny any involvement in Shannon's death. And he is so weird. Once he faked a heart attack to escape a journalist who was asking him about the whole thing and about Shannon, and there's a video of him online doing this, he bends over and he screams, my defibrillator. And then seconds later, he's fine. Like nothing happened. Like so bizarre. And the journalist offers to call Hackett a doctor and he responds, I am a doctor and gets in his car while making the sign of the cross. Like this... Is this scripted? And Way to weird everyone out. Like, you're definitely not taking suspicion off of you with your no. behavior. <laughs> it's so weird. But what I'll say, though, is that his story that he told Bruce Anderson about giving medication to Shannon actually tracks with what another, like, pretty prominent Oak Beach resident told me. His name's Joe Scalise. We interviewed him from Unraveled. And he said Hackett is, like, the candy man and exploits his ability to prescribe medication and was the go-to guy in the neighborhood. Like if you needed something, he would just prescribe it and he would just take cash for it. Um, Super unethical, but doctors with brick and mortar offices who pretend to be really legitimate do it too, but it's not great. And it also kind of supports this idea that perhaps he did give Shannon drugs that may have made her condition worse. Right. Something else that is really suspicious is we told you about Oak Beach is a gated neighborhood, gated community. And 
the gate in the front of this community is outfitted with cameras, um, which no one bothered to look at the footage of um, until until months later. And by then, everything had been erased. So like I said, this guy saw himself as like the mayor, the police guard of Oak Beach. He was one of the only people with access to these cameras. So again, you can't prove that he did it. It just looks not good. It looks not good. So there is a great deal of discussion as to whether or not Shannon was a victim of the Long Island serial killer. And you know what? We don't know. She might not be. But John Ray believes that she is and that Hackett and a handful of others are responsible for the Lisk murders. But there are differences in Shannon's case. None of the other victims had known clients or drivers. Right. And, you know, I'm just going to I'm just going to start my theorizing because it's possible that these people are involved, but they weren't going to hurt Shannon and things got out of hand, right? Like really going through the possibilities. Sure. Would someone have gotten away that night with an intentional murder? Like the way the Gilgo fours lives were taken. Shannon had a phone on her. Shannon had a driver. She wouldn't have been like a super easy sitting duck. That's all true. But so many of the circumstances in the variables are similar that again, it seems like it's way more light. The truth is a lot more layered. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and it's like, uh, obviously, when we're learning more and more about these different characters that were at play during the Lisk murders time. And how they're connected. And how they're connected. And it's like, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if there was more than one person that was doing this. And there are more victims out there and more bodies out there that they never ended up finding. Because it's like, the way that these women are treated, it's, you know, it would be shocking to think that there is only one man that is doing something like that. Totally. Totally. And in uh, the 10th episode that we're doing in this, you know, 10 week special series will be on potentially connected victims. So we can explore yeah. more of that then. But to go pivot back to Shannon, the 911 call and the police's decision to not release it for more than a decade only fueled speculation that a cover up was in fact at play. And I'll explain why. So the police come out and they say Shannon is not a victim of Lisk. She died by misadventure. No foul play here. This is an unfortunate accident. But the rule is, if there's evidence relating to a case and there's no open investigation, if it's an adjudicated case, they're supposed to legally release the evidence. Mm-hmm. It's public. It's a public interest, and you're supposed to release it. So when people tried to get their hands on the 911 call, the Suffolk County Police Department said absolutely not and gave a reason as to why, as that it's connected, it's an open investigation. And like, was there a crime with Shannon or was there not? You can't have it both ways, but they wanted to have it both ways. They wanted to say she, it was an accident and you can't have this 911 call because it's an open investigation. It's like, you, okay, well, well, what is it? And that obviously fueled way more speculation and, you know, rumblings of a cover up. Anyways, obviously we can blame some of this corruption on James Burke, but He's been out of the Suffolk County Police Department for more than eight years. So um, the decision to not release this call persisted after he was long gone. Okay, so going back to the case and where things are now. So tragically, Shannon's mother, Mary, was murdered by her youngest daughter, Sarah, during a mental health episode. And our hearts really break for the Gilbert family. You know, they've been put through hell over and over and over again, but they keep pushing through. 
going to search for Shannon when the police wouldn't, and making sure that the media knew Shannon's true story. Their strength, and especially Mary Gilbert's strength, was absolutely vital to the discovery of the Long Island serial killer and the connected victims, and so many people out in the world are forever grateful. I was so gutted to hear that Sherry was killed that way. Um, you know, it's it's devastating and it doesn't seem real, you know? No, it, it it's really insane. it really doesn't. And there's been movies made about Mary's persistence and dedication to finding her daughter. You know, she's been the main character in several scripted projects about this. And, you know, it's it's heartbreaking. So now all of you know as much as there is to know about Shannon. You know, this case is like a labyrinth and I'm sure we didn't cover every single conspiracy connected to Shannon's disappearance, but these are certainly the main ones. Um, If you have any questions, feel free to submit them. I'm not sure if we'll do a follow-up, but if we have enough questions, maybe. Yeah. Either way, please check out theheavymetalproject.com. Like we said, that's where you can buy these necklaces, which are going to support the sex worker outreach program. And of course, if you have any tips or information about the Long Island serial killer case, please contact Suffolk County Crime Stoppers at 1-800-220-TIPS. And there's a $50,000 reward for information leading to an arrest. Sources for this episode are Discovery IDs Unraveled, Gilgo News, The Doe Network, The Long Island Press, Court Documents, 48 Hours, The Gilgo Case, New York Daily News, The New York Post, NamUs, ABC News, Ancestry, Find a Grave, Newsday, um, Robert Kolker's Lost Girls, Portland Press Herring, Morning Sentinel, Professor Scott Cunningham, William & Mary Law School, National Library of Medicine, Northeastern Global News, World Atlas, New York Times, and NBC New York. Shout out to the lovely betrothed to Jacqueline, Jared Monaco, for scoring original music for The First Degree. And thank you, Andrea Marshbank, for your dedication to this special series and awesome job on the writing and research.